Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Really glad to be here with you. I know that it's a tough time out there with so much going on with the mask debate, especially as we're seeing so many cases uh, rise across the U.S. and continuing to do so. Could you tell us about what the logic is um, and what the thinking is at the federal level about not requiring a mask mandate? Well, I, I appreciate you asking that because there is so much focus on whether or not we should force people to do something. And I think not enough focus on uh, the need to educate people about why they should do it. Uh, strictly from a public health, motivational, and behavior change perspective, it's important to know that we don't have much luck when it comes to trying to force people to do something if we don't couple that with the, the why. We know that, that if you force people to do it, they'll do it when you're watching, um, but then when you, when you aren't watching, they'll stop doing it. We also know that shame doesn't work, and that's true for opioids, that's true for, uh, for STDs, that's true for HIV testing. Uh, what I'm focused on as Surgeon General is helping people understand a couple of things. Number one, COVID-19 uh, has really um, humbled us in terms of its asymptomatic spread. Uh, really quickly, what that means is that previous diseases like COVID-19, uh, other coronaviruses, really weren't spread by people who didn't have symptoms. Uh, you knew if you were sick, and if you were sick, then you were one of those people who was more likely to spread the disease. But up to 50% in many cases of people who are spreading COVID uh, are spreading it before they have symptoms and without ever even knowing they have it. And that's why our recommendations change to tell people to wear masks or face coverings. Uh, the other important thing I want people to know is that masks actually don't inhibit your freedom. They don't inhibit your choice. They enable freedom and enable more choices, because we know that if we can get 90% of people to wear face coverings and get people to practice at least six feet of social distancing from their neighbors and practice good hand hygiene, that we can reopen and that we can stay open and we can get back to schools, to worship, to college football in the fall, and to the other things that people want to do. You'll have more choices if you wear a face covering. There has been some debate and comparisons about, you know, seatbelt enforcement and other things like that. Uh, would you say that those are fair comparisons and that even if at the state level, there should be some level of enforcement? Well, I'm not opposed to, uh, to mandates at the state and the local level. We actually support local control and state control. Here's the concern when you talk about enforcement from a federal level. And this is a very practical concern. This isn't um, subjective. If the difference between a mandate and a guideline is, is enforcement. And from a federal perspective, we can send in federal troops, and we see that's not working very well in places like Oregon right now, and that there are also concerns about enforcement when you look at what's happened in the African-American community and people being uh, killed for very minor offenses. Uh, and we also could take away federal funding which I think is a very tough thing to put on the table at a time when we're fighting a global uh, pandemic. And then there's civil penalties. Again, all of these things uh, work best and become less necessary if implemented at the local level and coupled with education. And so again, not against a mandate, but really against 
doing things without making sure people understand why they're doing them and working with the local communities to make sure everyone understands that we all benefit when people wear face coverings. Dr. Adams, one of the things that you're really focused on is diversity and especially looking at how uh, the virus has been uh, disproportionately impacting certain communities. What has been done, at, whether at your office level or generally with the coronavirus task force, um, with addressing these? Because we've been hearing about them, but there hasn't really been any action. Well, we should be shocked by the statistics. Uh, Native American, Alaska Native, and Blacks five times the rate of hospitalizations, Hispanics four times the rate of hospitalizations. And we know that a disproportionate number of the 140,000 people who've died of COVID-19 in this country have been people of color. That should shock us, but it shouldn't surprise us. And what I mean there is we've known for over a century that people of color are disproportionately impacted by an array of diseases from cancer to heart disease, to diabetes and to substance use disorder. <clears throat> and really what COVID-19 has done is, uh, is sh uh, shown us those health disparities that have ex existed in communities of color uh, for all of my life and are, have impacted me and my own family personally. So you ask what the task force is doing. Uh, we're trying to number one, improve data collection and the CDC now collects data according to race and ethnicity. Uh, that wasn't happening before and still isn't happening with a number of other diseases because it involves a level of coordination that goes beyond the federal government. Again, it may start at the local coroner. It may start at the local uh, hospital where a person is admitted and you need a busy nurse to write something by hand and to fax it in. We're looking at improving those processes to make it easier for people to do the right things. We're doing more research. The National Institute on Minority Health, which is a, a part of NIH, is doing research regarding how we can make testing more available in communities and, and making sure uh, we've got urgent research done to ensure the remedies that are available, like remdesivir, like steroids, like convalescent plasma, work as well and are equally available. And we're also working, and this is critically important for your viewers to understand, uh, we're working with communities to make sure they are participating in vaccine trials because uh, we want everyone to understand that vaccines are safe and effective, and we want people to feel confident that they're safe and effective in all communities so that we don't actually worsen disparities with a vaccine, which could happen if the people who are least affected get the vaccine and the people who are most affected from COVID-19 won't get the vaccine or aren't equally helped by it. How do you That's just a small sample. Excuse How do you ensure ahead. that, though, when it comes to the clinical trials and, and making sure, uh, obviously, the distribution you can you can sort of look at, but when it comes to clinical trials, is there any sort of mandate for diversity? Uh, well, there are guidelines that we have within HHS to really help people understand uh, within the agency uh, that we need to go above and beyond to recruit people into trials. But at the end of the day, you can't compel someone to participate in a clinical trial. We can only be aware of it and, and have outreach. And that's what we're doing from the HHS point of view. Just uh, today, we released new guidelines from the Office of Civil Rights, um, helping make sure there was no discrimination, uh, not only within government, but within healthcare facilities, according to race and ethnicity. And so these are things that we're doing to try to make sure people understand uh, we recognize the severity <clears throat> and the impact of health disparities. And we're, uh, we're putting meaningful action uh, into, uh, into place to, to decrease those disparities. One more real concrete example that I think is important for COVID. We have over 2,000 community-based testing sites. 
uh, uh, and 70% of the community-based testing sites that are federally supported are in with a high social vulnerability index, meaning uh, largely uh, communities of color and places that have risk factors like, uh, like poverty uh, in those communities. And so we really are trying to direct the resources to the people who are most impacted. There is meaningful change going on and more funding going to HRSA and to Medicaid, again, which also serve people of color. It is not to say mission accomplished. We are nowhere near where I would like to be as a public health advocate and as a black man and a black doctor, but we certainly have moved very quickly uh, on some issues that I've been advocating for my entire public health career. I know that you're at the top level and seeing all of this change, but I think generally we're still looking at what seems like a repetition of what happened back in March when it comes to a shortage of testing availability, long turnaround times, shortage of uh, reagents and, and other supplies, as well as protective gear. So while you are seeing this, I don't know that, that you know, at the general public level, we're actually hearing that. So can you tell us about how that's going to be resolved? Well, well, thank you for that. And I think it's important to acknowledge the urgency of now. Over 60,000 cases per day. We do not want this. This is not a good thing. And it's why, again, we're focusing on that prevention message. But it's important for people to understand we are in a very different place than what we were in February and in March in a couple of ways. Uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, has increased by over 300%. You are no longer hearing about healthcare workers dressing up in trash bags and having to make do with substandard equipment. It's not that we're where we need to be, but we are in a better place. Remdesivir, steroids, convalescent plasma means that the mortality rate is much lower than what it was back then, that uh, <clears throat> people are getting out of the hospital sooner because of, uh, of, of advancements in technology that have occurred. Uh, we are, in fact, uh, doing a better job of protecting the vulnerable. The average age of diagnosis has dropped by a decade and a half. We know originally this hit nursing homes and, uh, and the elderly particularly hard. So we are in a very different place. That's not to say we should pat ourselves on the back, but it is to say people should understand you have a much better chance of surviving if you get COVID-19 right now uh, and that you have a much lower rate of spread among healthcare workers and other uh, individuals on the front lines, uh, and that we need to continue to do our part to support that effort by wearing a face covering, by washing our hands, by maintaining six feet of social distance, and by avoiding large gatherings whenever we can. Uh Really quickly, an update on the task force. A lot of stuff obviously going on behind the scenes, um, as has been the case. But for the general public to understand, uh, what is the latest in developments? And can you explain a little bit um, about what attention has been placed on testing, as well as why data was moved from the CDC initially? Well, the task force is a group of individuals from across government. We have the cabinet secretaries. We have uh, an array of different positions, myself, Admiral Drouet, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and we all come together and quite honestly, uh, we hash it out. We put the tough issues on the table and while we don't always agree, we know we've got the advice of the best people in the country uh, on these issues, really helping us develop policy for what is a novel disease. Uh, again, it's important for folks to remember, this disease is still in its infancy. Uh, it, it's barely over six months that we even knew that it existed. And when you look at uh, therapeutics, when you look at 
at the change in our, in our stockpile. When you look at an array of factors, we've come a long way in a short amount of time and we have to continue to keep our foot on the gas because still far too many people are getting affected, far too many people are dying from this disease. Uh, you, you ask what the task force is focused on now. We're focused on communities that are hardest hit. So we know that this disease isn't out of control everywhere. Actually, in most of the country, the disease is under control. There are hot spots. Arizona, for instance, is level or falling if you take out Maricopa County. Uh, it's why we sent a, a CDC team to Maricopa County. I will be going to Miami, Florida. That's another hot spot later this week to make sure everyone on the ground there understands what federal resources are available. We're focused on making sure we're putting out the fires where they exist. And also, again, helping people understand the best tools that we have are really in the hands of the public. It's why I have out my hashtag COVID stops with me campaign, urging the public to do their part because uh, we want to be there to help protect people. We want to be there if people get diagnosed to make sure they get tested, to make sure they get treated. But I don't want you to get tested. I don't want you to have to, to, to get COVID in the first place. And you asked about testing. So I'll quickly um, touch on that. Important for people to know that about 25% of the testing in the country is point of care. That means you're getting your results back in under an hour. Another quarter of testing is uh, done in hospitals, which means you're getting your report back in just a few hours. So only about 50% of testing is done in large commercial labs. And the, the, it, we follow the, those numbers every single day. And the turnaround time is about three to four days, which in my opinion, could, needs to be improved. The quicker we get that information back, the quicker we can tell someone whether they should isolate or not, and then to do contact tracing. But the fact is, uh, the, the, the stories that you're hearing about two-week turnaround times, I don't deny that that's happening in some places, but the, the data just doesn't bear out that that is what's going on across the board. We're doing over 800,000 tests per day when you look at the numbers for last week. We have improved. We've just got to do a better job of making sure we don't have so many people who need testing and who are getting diagnosed in the first place, because at some point, uh, the demand will always outstrip the supply if you have increasing case numbers. We need to drive those case numbers down and, and while we're also increasing testing and getting it to the people who need it the most. Certainly. Um, I'm going to pivot to your uh, health and economic prosperity report in just a second. But before that, I just wanted to get um, an update on the conversations uh, with the president. Um, have you had them and, and what what are they like right now? So, again, the task force meets multiple times a week as the larger task force and subgroups meet throughout the week. So every single day, people on the task force are working to make sure we're improving guidelines, <clears throat> that we're tracking data, that we're doing outreach to communities. As a matter of fact, before speaking with you, I was just on a call with a large number of community stakeholders from across the nation talking about ways we could address disparities in COVID-19 outcomes. Uh, that information from the task force goes directly to the vice president. He's at every single task force meeting. And then the president is briefed by the vice president every single day. And the president occasionally comes down. He's a busy man. He's working on a number of different things, but comes down and participates in the task force directly. So the bottom line is the president is getting information from the task force every single day. And it's a process that we're constantly trying to improve. But, but I've got to tell you, when I sit at the task force meetings, I'm surrounded by the best uh, scientists in the entire nation, Dr. Francis Collins, Dr. Deb Burks, Dr. Tony Fauci. And again, that input is being given 
to the president of the United States. And that's all that I can ask for. Uh, and I want the American people to know that I and the other physicians are doing everything we can to make sure we're providing good and sound advice. And this report that you've made as such a priority, I know that generally speaking, there's been sort of this patchwork approach and sort of independent organizations or independent communities really taking it on themselves to address these health disparities. What is it you're looking for? I know that there's already been uh, HHS support for that Morehouse uh, School of Medicine project, but where else do we go from here and what are you looking to achieve? Well, we know that the U.S. spends more money on healthcare than any other developed nation, westernized country, and gets actually some pretty poor results uh, for their investments. This is what we call the U.S. health disadvantage. We know that this U.S. health disadvantage is actually hurting not just our own health, it's hurting our economic competitiveness. The number two cost for most Fortune 500 companies behind salary is health care. We know that that poor health also impacts whether or not people show up to work and how productive they are while they're at work. It impacts workplace accidents. It impacts the ability to recruit a healthy workforce. We know that in many places that were hard hit by the opioid epidemic, they can't staff factories because they can't find enough people who can pass a drug test. This is the U.S. health disadvantage. And what uh, what really concerns me, and this, this report started well before COVID-19, but COVID-19 has shown a magnifying glass uh, on, on, uh, on the problems that exist here, that in many cases, health is pitted against uh, economics. And we've seen this happen with COVID. And people want to say you either are for reopening or you're for keeping people healthy. I want folks to understand that these two can't be delinked from one another. And what we're doing is really working with the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, working with uh, UVA Darden School of Business, working with business leaders to help them understand that when businesses invest in the health of their communities, they see not just health metrics improve, but they see business metrics improve. Again, people are more likely to be at work, they're more likely to be productive. These businesses become, uh, bec become employers of destination for younger folks who are looking for places to move their family to. And if we can do that, then we can actually get more people on board with creating the environment that allows everyone to make healthy choices and puts everyone in the best possible position to live a long and healthy life. And we will lessen disparities because personal responsibility is critical, but the choices people make are 100% dependent on the choices they have around them. And far too many people, especially people of color, don't have the opportunities, the choices in front of them to be able to make an appropriately healthy choice for them and their families. Thank you, Dr. Adams. And one final quick round question for you. There's been a lot of discussion on uh, between medical experts about there being a lack of a federal response. Are you under the impression that there's a lack of a unified federal response to the outbreak? Uh, honestly, nothing could be further than the truth. Uh, I'm working 24 seven and all the other doctors are working 24 seven to coordinate a federal response. Uh, I used to run a State Department of Health. Uh, for three years. It's important for, for people to understand that uh, you can't do everything from Washington, D.C., that the majority of the work and the majority of the authority is at the state and local level within the public health systems. And so what we're doing is working closely with state and local health departments. Again, I'll be going down to Miami, Florida uh, soon after this to meet with the Surgeon General of Florida and to meet with the governor. I was in Georgia a few weeks ago meeting with their health commissioner and with their governor. We have weekly calls with the governors. We are really trying to have a federally supported, state-led 
and locally executed response. And that's the way public health works in this country. And that can be frustrating for some people, but it's also where we get a lot of great innovation from because we know what works in Billings, Montana, isn't what's gonna work in downtown New York City. We really need to give the flexibility for local response, but we need to make sure there's federal guidelines, which we offer, and federal support, which comes from Congress, to make sure those state-led and locally executed responses are a success. And that's what we're trying to figure out and push with the task force. And uh, again, while I would by no means say mission accomplished or say that this has been a success, I would say that, that I'm proud of the work that the CDC has done, that uh, the members of the task force have done, that NIH has done, and that the federal government is doing to put us in a position to be able to defeat this disease. And I think that we can defeat this disease if we can get the public to do their part and we can get state governments and local governments and the federal government to all work together. And I'm seeing more and more of that. Dr. Jerome Adams, U.S. Surgeon General, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. COVID stops with us and I, I, we can do this. I'm 100% confident we can defeat this disease. Uh, we know that, that in just the course of a couple of weeks to months, Italy went from being one of the hardest hit in the world to actually now being open for tourism and having schools open again. We can be there too if we just all do our part, put the politics aside, and actually do what it takes to overcome this pandemic.